Last night we looked at how death does not have the final say in our lives. As Christians, we live according to a new reality, a new story, one that extends beyond death. And with that, we've opened the door to a bunch more questions. Like, what does that look like? How will we um, uh, describe, or how does the scripture describe that condition of life after death? Does everyone receive what we call eternal life, or what does it mean for eternal punishment, and things like that? And we're going to look at Matthew 25, starting in verse 1, or verse 31, to start unpacking some of that. First, let me pray, okay? Father God, we come to you as your children this morning thanking you that your mercies are new this day, that your grace has supplied us with the energy to wake up, to come here and worship you, celebrate who you are and what you've done in in and through Jesus. Lord, I pray that this moment here would be formative and shaping each and every student's heart by what your word says, what your scripture has to say about yourself, about us as your children. So God bless this time. May the Spirit work in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, that's Jesus, and all the angels come with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, to the sheep, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So let's just pause here right right now. There is a moment in history, it's a future moment, when Jesus is going to return, and he's going to act as a judge, and he's going to gather all the nations to himself, and he's going to separate those people into sheep and goats. This is obviously not literal. You're not going to be turned into a sheep or a goat one day. He's describing this in terms of how you relate to the shepherd. Are you actually a sheep of the shepherd? Are you not. Are you a goat? So he's going to separate those people, and the sheep are going to be those people that enter into the kingdom of eternal life. The goats are going to be those people that enter into something else. So this is the first important teaching from this passage. There will be judgment by King Jesus. Jesus is going to judge the world. It's going to be in and through Jesus that this judgment happens. So Jesus, our King, our Lord, our Savior that we sing about, love to, um, you know, preach about, that we pray to, He is also the judge of the world. King Jesus will judge the world. And this is an important point. Not all people are going to inherit the kingdom. Not all people are going to be sheep There are some goats. There are people who have rejected Jesus, and they will continue to reject Jesus until this very moment. There's a popular misunderstanding that's getting traction in our world today, even among Christians and churches, that all people will be saved. This is called universalism. 
and they believe that it is most merciful, most gracious, and most good of God for him to save people no matter what they want, no matter who they choose to follow, no matter what they've done with their lives, and and whether or not they want Jesus in the first place. We're going to show how that's not most merciful. That's not most loving, actually. And here's a key thing. Write this down now. The reason we don't understand hell is because we don't understand God's love. If we truly, radically have been acquainted with the love of God, we can understand hell. If not, we will not understand hell. So it's, it, it's by understanding the true nature of God's love for us and for his creation that we can then understand hell. And secondly, this is just a bad principle when we read Scripture, to think that everyone will be saved. It teaches us to base our understanding of Scripture based on our feelings or our um, understandings or what we think would be best. Okay? So that's the clear thing here. There's going to be judgment. Not all people will inherit um, the kingdom. But before we make any other comments, let's continue in this passage, okay? uh, Verse 35. Jesus says, I was hungry, you gave me food. He's talking to the sheep. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the King Jesus will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. So here, Jesus is describing how he judges people. How he separates people into sheep and into goats. And how, is, how does he do that? He does that by how they treat Jesus. Listen to me. Jesus is judging them by how they relate to him. He's saying there's something about how you treated me that determines where you're going to spend eternity. So um, it's wrapped up. Our judgment is wrapped up in how we have a relationship with Jesus. But this is more extensive. It's, there's more to this than it first appears, okay? Because something about how they treat the least of these is linked to how they treat Jesus. How they treat those in need, the sick, the strangers, the broken, the homeless. How they treat those people is tied up in how they treat Jesus. Listen to me. How we treat the outsider in our friend group, how we treat the loner at school, how we treat the homeless people on the corner is how we treat Jesus. And God is going to judge us for that. We cannot separate how we treat other people from how we treat Jesus. There is no category for that in the Bible. Because we have been radically transformed by who we follow in Jesus, that means we we take on the life of Jesus and the lifestyle of Jesus. We are made to be more like Jesus, so we treat people in the same way Jesus did. And Jesus treated people with sacrificial love and humility and grace. He ate with them. He welcomed them. He took them in. So that's the point here. Do not miss this. Something about how we treat other people is how we treat Jesus. And this is the same criteria that's given um, negatively to the goats. 
in this, this next passage, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also say, they will be surprised. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So in the same way that the blessed people, the righteous people are judged by how they treat Jesus, the cursed, the unrighteous are judged as well by how they treated Jesus, by how they uh, did not care for him, did not relate to him in a way where they represented him as Lord. So, Uh, They are judged by what they had done. This is what um, Revelation 20 says. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. This looks like a very similar scene to what we see in Matthew 25. Books are opened, then another book was opened, and it was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up their dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So notice, okay, this is how Scripture, this is how Jesus wants to think about judgment. It's not simply believism or decisionism. You are not going to be judged by whether you prayed or muttered a prayer once. You are not going to be pray or, or judged by how many denials you attended. You're not going to be judged for um, all the things that you do. It's going to, you're going to be judged by how you relate to Jesus and whether that what you do is rooted in how you relate to Jesus. So Jesus is not saying that he only judges people by what they know or what they claim to believe or whether they made a decision at one point in their life to accept him into their heart. He is saying that he judges them based on how they treated him, how their life actually reflects who their Lord is. So Jesus will judge people by whether they truly, sincerely followed him and therefore had their lives transformed to be more like Jesus. Now, this, is, this does not um, dismiss believing in Jesus. You must believe in Jesus. The, the scriptures are filled with Jesus calling people to believe in him. So don't hear me saying that that's not necessary, but that's not the end of it. We are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Faith is always accompanied by works, by transformative reflections of Jesus. Do our lives, do our works actually reflect who we have faith in? So Jesus will judge people based on whether they truly, sincerely followed him. And Matthew 25, 46 describes the consequences uh, for for them both. The consequences of judgment are eternal life or eternal punishment. The righteous will enjoy eternal life. And the unrighteous will suffer eternal punishment. And this is where we're going to pause to dig in today. What does Jesus mean 
by eternal life and eternal punishment. Typically, we would summarize this as heaven and hell, right? We would say eternal life, that means heaven. Eternal punishment, that means hell. But notice that Jesus didn't say that here, although that may be what, get, what Jesus is getting at. Um, that's not the language that he used, okay? So this means that we just have to uh, work a little bit to get at what Jesus is getting at, okay? So that's what we're going to try to do. Um, and getting at what does Jesus mean by those things. Before we jump in, though, okay, in light of this Jesus of judgment, what shall we say to all this? I mean, how are we feeling right now? I don't know if you're like me. It feels a bit heavy in the room, right? We're talking about this Jesus of judgment, the one that we often just sing about or mention in passing, and here he is sending people into eternal fire or eternal punishment or sending people into eternal life. But this is where we need to say this one thing. Jesus is talking in Matthew 25. Only a few chapters later, this same Jesus is the one who is unjustly sentenced to death, stripped of his clothes, mocked, by having a crown of thorns placed on his head, he's spit on, and he is killed and beat for our sins. The same Jesus that judges us is the same Jesus that has saved us. The same Jesus that has the authority to judge you is the same Jesus that humbled himself to the point of death to atone for your sins and save us from death and hell. You see, there's a great tendency in me there's a great tendency in all of us, I think, to separate this judging Jesus from the loving Jesus. But Scripture never wants us to think of those two things separately. And I would tell you this, I don't think you can understand judgment or love without understanding them together. We have to understand them together. The same Jesus that is just to judge you for your sin is the same Jesus that died to save you from your sin. The same Jesus that is going to judge you for your sin and your penalty and weight of death is the one who died to save you from that penalty and to bring you into his presence. So don't ever forget that. In fact, there's, there's going to be a phrase that we use often. It's this, God's reconciling love is the ultimate judgment. God bringing heaven on earth, reconciling heaven and earth, God and man, that very act itself is judgment. And it's the best way to understand judgment. It's in relation to God's reconciliation. We all know what reconciliation means. Like if there's two people in a relationship and maybe there's some friction there, reconciliation brings that relationship back together. That's what God's doing with us, what he's doing with heaven and earth. He's bringing that relationship back together. But don't be fooled. That is an act of judgment. That will be an act of judgment. So it, this is all part of one story. God's judgment, but also Jesus saving us from our sins. This is all part of one story. And if we strip hell and judgment away from the big storyline of the Bible, we'll misunderstand what it's all about. We'll start to have wrong ideas of what it is. But here's the crazy thing. God's judgment is actually good news. It's good news for us, and it's good news for his world because we have a God who is set. He is determined to restore 
the wreck and havoc and chaos and brokenness and hell that we have brought on earth. And he is serious about getting that out of the earth for his purposes. So that's good news. It's tough news, but it's good news. Okay? So um, let's dive into what is hell. What is hell? Everyone good? Everyone all right? Do we need a stretch break? No? Okay. Just loosen it up a little bit. Get the wrist going. Some notes. Yes. Okay. Here we go. What is hell? See, when, when you talk about hell, what are some images that come up? Maybe shout out some images of hell that come. Fire. Lake of fire. The devil. What? Zombies. Okay. All right. But we have all these images of hell that come in. Uh, for me, I think it's best described as like we think of hell as this subterranean, like it's in the middle of the earth. Um, torture chamber designed by God. We all have this idea, this popular image in our head that God has this subterranean torture chamber that's filled with flames and demons and worms that eat flesh and all this stuff. And a lot of that imagery comes from the Bible because of some of the imagery it uses, but also a lot of imagery comes from like medieval art and like Dante's Inferno and all this stuff. Like we get a, a bunch of the imagery uh, for, for hell, not from the Bible, but from other things in popular culture. So we need to make sure we're understanding hell in terms of how the Bible paints it. And we're going to try to do that. Okay, first, where did hell come from? Where did hell come from? We do not see hell as part of God's original design in Genesis 1.1. Don't miss how profound this is. Okay? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It does not say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and hell. Just think about that for a second. God's original intention for the good universe that he had did not include hell. He was not setting up this existence where good people will go to heaven and bad people will go to hell. God's intended design was for heaven and earth. Hell seems to be some sort of parasite, some sort of foreign force or agent that has worked itself into God's creation, just like sin. Hell is uh, foreign to God's good design for his world, just like we understand sin to be. And we see a little bit of this in Matthew 25, uh, in the passage we read. Uh, Jesus is going to send the righteous to eternal life, which was prepared for them before the foundation of the world, right? That's where they're meant to be. That was prepared for, for them. He says he sends the unrighteous to the eternal fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. Think about that. Hell was never a place intended for human beings to go. God intended that place for a rebellious devil and his angels, which is a whole nother thing, but we were never designed as human beings to go to hell. And so when we are sent to hell, it's a picture of total dehumanization. It's a picture of a place that we were never meant to inhabit, a place that we are never meant to dwell. It's totally against God's good design for our lives. Hell is a picture of the epitome of the reversal of God's design for us. That is what hell is. And that's why it's given this language of darkness or just frustration and, and things like that. We'll talk about that more. So where, where did hell um, come from? Just like sin, hell finds its origins in our rebellion and in mankind. We have brought hell on earth. 
In the same way we've brought sin into God's good world, we have brought hell into God's good world. And in the same way Jesus brings heaven to earth, we'll talk about that uh, this afternoon, we have brought hell to earth. And what we're going to see is that God is set on getting the hell out of his earth. He is set on getting the sin and the hellish influences of life and that we, through our, our humanity, have brought on earth and he's going to bring it out. So this is important because hell is not only a location where the rebellious will go when they die, but it's also a realm, a dimension that we have brought on earth through our sin. Much like heaven. Heaven, we, we are more comfortable thinking about heaven on earth. Like, we have a category for that, of thinking, like, this is so good. It's so, like, spirit-filled that it's like heaven on earth. There's also hell on earth. And you know what? Some of us have gone through some things that are hell on earth. We've had just life difficulty after life dif- difficulty. We've had tragedy after tragedy. And you know what? A way to describe that is hell on earth. You've gone through hell It's just rooted in sin and wickedness, and you just feel the weight of that brokenness. That's because hell is a realm that we experience on earth. So this is even more um, important or seen in the fact that when Jesus referred to hell, he is using the word Gehenna. Okay, everyone say Gehenna. Gehenna. That's the word that Jesus uses when he talks about the word, word hell. Now, Gehenna is a Greek translation of actually a Hebrew place. So when Jesus used the word hell, he's actually referring to, listen to me, an actual physical place on earth. He's, he's referring to a place that was very well known to Israel's history. It was called the Valley of Hinnom, which is then translated Gehenna. So in the Old Testament, the Valley of Hinnom was actually a geographical location outside of Jerusalem, okay? So hell was a location outside of Jerusalem, and it has a hellish history to it. The people of Israel, um, they only served Yahweh, right? That was their God. But when they wanted to sacrifice to other gods, which was totally against what God wanted for them, they would go outside the city to this valley of Hinnom, hell, They would go there and they would sacrifice their children by burning them to other foreign gods. So it was a complete reversal of what God had intended for his people of Israel. And this is the imagery that God uses to talk about hell. So when when Jesus says Gehenna or hell, every Jew, every person who is familiar with the Valley of Hinnom would understand what he's talking about. It's this place where Israel has totally destroyed good, perfect gifts from God, and they've burned up their own children. They've destroyed themselves in idolatry and self-worship. Uh, we have a story of Ahaz. This is what we see him doing as one of the wicked kings of Israel. Um, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father did, uh, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, which was not good. And he even made metal images for the Baals, which was a foreign god. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hanom and burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people. So this is what hell is all about. It is about us being idolatrous and destructive 
and sinful and wicked. And it's a realm that exists here on earth. Not only will it be a location at the end of time that rebellious people are sent to, but it's also a realm that we interact with here on earth. So just to summarize that, hell is not only a place that the unrepentant rebel will go on the day of judgment, it is also a reality that we create by our sinful actions and desires here on earth. So the final climax of that moment when God is going to restore the world, what hell is described as is something that will be cast outside of that new creation, outside the city, the new Jerusalem. And, and scripture describes the location of hell this way, as outside the city, which, which leads to our next question. Where is hell located? Is it some underground um, torture chamber? No, scripture likes to describe it as outside the city. You may have, I believe you soaked through Isaiah 66 this morning. It talks about after the new creation happening, there's this place outside where uh, the bodies are burning and the dogs are there. That is hell. It is outside the city. Um, so scripture prefers to not talk about it as this underground place, but as out city, or outside the city of God's new creation. Okay, So when new creation comes, it's described as this new Jerusalem, a new city. And hell is described as a place outside of that city. Everyone tracking? Okay, so that's how it describes it. So why is this important? Why is it important to think about hell's location like this, as a place outside the city? It's because it better conveys, it better communicates to us the purpose of hell in light of God's ultimate plan to restore things. Okay? Hell will be cast outside the city. Hell's going to be brought outside of new creation so that hell no longer has influence, power to affect God's good world anymore. It's going to be cast outside of that so that new creation can flourish as it was intended to. So understanding the location of hell as outside the, the city, this causes us to think of hell by its relationship to new creation, right? It's causing us to think about hell in light of the story, not stripping it out as some separate thing that we can think about, but by understanding its location as outside the city, we are reminded that this is a consequence to God's new creation, God's commitment to make things new. So, uh, this leads to our next question. Why does hell exist and what is happening there? Is hell really all about God torturing people for sinning against him? Is it some torture chamber? Is there maybe some bigger picture here? That we can see. As we've already noted in the location of hell, it's outside the city. Um, this means that we should think of hell in terms of how it relates to God's people, God's people, and God's new creation. And I think it's better to understand hell as protecting his new creation than simply torturing the wicked. Scripture wants us to think of hell as God's commitment to protect his people more so than it is about torturing those bad, wicked people. So that's why Scripture talks about it as outside the city, because it's protecting God's people. It's protecting what He has done in new creation. So 
Hell is certainly, don't mishear me, it's a place of punishment. That's how Jesus describes it, it is punishment. But I just think torture is not the primary purpose. P- punishment is not the primary purpose. God's purpose is not torture, but protection. To contain that destructive power of sin and hell that we have brought on earth, he's going to contain it and then cast it out. That's how scripture is trying to describe it for us. But let's be honest, okay, as, I'm, as I was studying this and thinking about this, is this not simply just glossing over some of the crazy imagery we see with hell? Like we're talking about some intense imagery, fire, worms that do not die, weeping and gnashing of teeth, darkness. Are these not torture? Like how can we just gloss over these images, right? The first thing we need to do is admit this is imagery, okay, which may or may not be literal, Okay, just give me that for a second. This imagery may or may not be literal. And I would say we primarily see it viewed in Scripture as metaphorical. You guys know what a metaphor is? Yes. I'm hoping that we all know what a metaphor is. Uh, Let me give an example off the top of my head of a metaphor. Um, Yeah. Why can't I come up with a metaphor right now? Anyone have a metaphor to submit to? What? Huh? Your eyes are like the sky. Oh, darn. Your eyes are the sky. Your eyes are the sky. Your hair is the wind. I don't know. I'm writing some Song of Solomon stuff right now. Writing some Song of Solomon stuff. But, okay. Yes, thank you wind that up. But listen to me. Why do we use metaphors? Why do we use imagery or non-literal language? Oftentimes we think that because it's metaphorical that means it's not real. For some reason as soon as I say that this imagery is metaphorical we start saying oh so hell like isn't real? No, 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 no. It's the complete opposite of that. We use metaphor to describe things that are too real. We cannot capture it with literal language. We cannot contain our understanding around it. So we use metaphor to discuss things and to communicate things that are too real to be captured with literal language. So uh, we do this all the time. Like think about death. When we talk about death, we often use metaphor. Like they passed away. They kicked the bucket. They're pushing up daisies. Every culture has these weird metaphors uh, to describe death. In Poland, I'm a Polish native. Not really, but like my, my family's from there many generations ago. They, they say to die, they, they say to die is to go out like a candle. That's their metaphor for death. In Italy, they say death is to go listen to the crickets sing or stretch the leather. That's their definition of death. In Portugal, it's to wear wooden pajamas like that person has is going to wear wooden pajamas that's what it means to die for them in Chinese they say in China they say death is to go sell salty duck eggs if you heard a Chinese person (laughs) if you hear a Chinese person tell you to go sell salty duck eggs you should be offended they're threatening your life okay in Finland The death metaphor is to throw a spoon in the corner. That person has thrown the spoon in the corner. 
they have died. In Greek, uh, this reminds me of Hercules, if anyone's seen the Disney movie Hercules. Um, it is to cut the thread of their life, right? You know, you can't cut the thread. That's what uh, ancient Greece would talk about, death. But we all use metaphor on a daily basis, especially with things like death. And, and these lang- this language is not describing a biological process. It's not... Um, It's not describing, like, exactly what's happening with your anatomy as a person, what's literally happening to you. These are metaphors that are infused with rich understandings of what the reality of death is all about. The body decomposing, um, the cessation of life, or moving on into the next life. These are cultural ways of describing that moment, and it, it does it with metaphor. So we use metaphor to speak with inexpressible realities. We do it all the time. Love, beauty, sorrow, these are things that we often use metaphor to describe. So Jesus is using this imagery, scripture is using this imagery, and I don't think it's literal because how does fire and darkness literally operate together? They don't literally operate together. You can't have fire and darkness at the same time. So this is, this is metaphorical language. But that, listen to me, before you start storming out of here saying, like, hell isn't real. Hell is too real. It's so real that Jesus has to use metaphor to really instill in us what that reality is all about. Okay? It is a place of darkness, of flame, of dehumanization, self-destruction, loneliness, isolation. Jesus is using all of this imagery to capture for us the reality of hell. So um, it's because the reality of hell is too real that it's described with metaphorical imagery, okay? So um, what is the reality that Jesus is describing? What is he getting at with this language. Let's talk about fire. Why does Jesus use fire? What does the imagery of fire convey throughout Scripture? God's judgment is often described with fire, that he's coming with fire. Peter says that the heavens and the earth, they're being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. However, God's judgment of fire is not only destructive, it is also cleansing. Let me repeat that. God's judgment of fire is not only a description of destruction, it's also a description of cleansing. And we'll look at a few scripture references here. Second Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Notice, fire is being described here as something that's burning up the heavens, dissolving the heavens, but it's also doing something else on the earth. It's exposing something. It's revealing something. So that same fire that has a destructive power also has an exposing power, a cleansing power. Another passage, 2 Corinthians 3. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. The day, the day of the Lord is often another 
term for judgment, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So notice here, fire has a lot more uses than just destruction throughout Scripture. It's not only destructive, it also reveals what's truly will last, and it also tests and refines what sort of work on the earth will last. So, um, throughout Scripture, we see this, and we see this with God's holiness, too. God's holiness has the same twofold purpose. When we think about how holy God is, it brings uh, judgment as well as cleanses. Like, God's holiness cleanses us, equips us to be holy, but also, if we mistreat God's holiness, we see this throughout the Old Testament often, even in Acts chapter 5, um, we will be burned up. We will, we will die. We will suffer if we mistreat God's holiness. The whole book of Leviticus in the Old Testament is about God giving the people of Israel instructions for how to carefully dwell in his holy presence because God's holy presence can be dangerous if we mistreat it. It's like the sun. The sun is life-giving to us. It gives us everything we need for life. But also, if you fly too close to the sun... It's not going to be life-giving for you. It's going to do something opposite of life-giving. So um, God's judgment of fire is similarly described. It brings judgment on those who um, need judgment and punishment for their wickedness and rebelliousness towards Jesus, but it also brings cleansing and healing to those that need it. So um, God's fire, think of it as like this one moment. God is going to send fire. Uh, He's going to do something to the universe, and that's going to have two consequences. That one act of fire is going to have two consequences. It's going to cleanse those and refine those who are following Jesus, and it is going to punish and destroy those who are destroying his earth. And this this is how Scripture describes God destroying people. I know it sounds crazy and it sounds harsh and wicked, but God is said to destroy people because those people are destroyers of the earth. This is what Revelation 11 says. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. God is not simply on a rampage of destruction for no apparent reason. He is destroying those who are destroying his earth, his creation, his good world. And it's because he's so loving towards his creation that he's going to get rid of that source of destruction from his earth. Um, So that's why I think Jesus uses the imagery of fire. Because it situates it in such a way to think of it in that twofold purpose. Okay, now we could spend the rest of the afternoon deciphering all of the different images of darkness and the worm does not die. Um, But I don't think that's the important direction for us right now. Because I think right now we need to tremble more than we need to translate all of this. I think we should let this imagery hit us. I think we should feel the weight of it. Not simply sit there and parse out everything that it might mean and all the Old Testament imagery that helps us understand. So this is the general sense and the weight of the imagery that we get. Hell, oh, 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 oh. hell is a place of God's ultimate judgment that is filled with suffering 
agony, anguish, frustration, loneliness, lostness, dehumanization, and self-destruction. This is what Jesus is getting at with all of his imagery of fire, of uh, darkness, and whatnot. So if we rebel against our loving creator, this is the path that we're making for ourselves. This is the path we are carving in the road. If we reject God who loves us and loves this world, and this leads to our final question, how does hell work? Is hell a place where God locks people up, sends them in there, outside their will and desire? Is it like a chamber that God locks from the outside and keeps them in there? As we've mentioned, I think we should, we should better understand hell as not only a location, but a realm that has been constructed by our own sin. I've created a hell on earth. There is something about my sin and wickedness that has done something not only to me, but the people around me and God's creation. So I have responsibility in terms of bringing hell on earth. But that comes, I do that, I bring hell on earth by acting from my self-will as opposed to God's will. So it's when I want to call my own shots in life, when I think I know better than the creator, that then this creates a pattern of hell on earth. It never works out for us. We're not good gods. We aren't equipped to call the shots. So I think a better way to understand hell is God gives us over to our rebellious will. He says, you want that. You think that is better for you. You think that's good life. You calling the shots. You wrecking the relationships in your life. You being prideful. Using other people as step stools for your success and your gain. You think that's good for you. Then I will give you over to that rebellious will. And this is how Isaiah talks about it. This is how Romans 1, Paul talks about it. God has given them over to their rebellious will. Like God is loving, seeking us, and there comes a moment where God says, I've loved you, I, I have cherished you as my child, as my creature, but yet you constantly, continually reject me, so I'm going to let you do that. And that's where hell is. Hell is the ultimate rejection of God by our will towards him. C.S. Lewis says this in his book, The Great Divorce. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Now, people who choose hell don't really know what they're choosing, okay? They are constantly choosing their self above God, their own will above his will, because they think that's better for them. But, but, it's not. And so this is why scripture often de describes us as being sent into hell or being thrown into hell. Not us, but uh, you know, other people who don't follow Jesus. If we don't follow Jesus, it's described as being uh, thrown into hell. And this is what Piper says. Piper says, the reason the Bible speaks of people being thrown into hell is that no one will willingly go there once they see what it really is. 
No one standing on the shore of the lake of fire jumps in. They do not choose it. They will not want it. They have chosen sin. They have wanted sin. And that's the key. It's because of our self-will to choose our way, our sin, over and over and over again, that we will come to a point where we have chosen hell for ourselves. And God will send us there for it. Hell is a path that we ourselves have paid. Hell is a path that we are constantly, continually paving in our world apart from Jesus. Without Jesus, we are bringing hell on earth because we have brought hell through our sin and our wills. So, hell is like a coffin that we have locked from the inside. Said, God, you're not going to get in my life. You're not going to meddle with what I want. This is my choice, my will. And God turns us over to that, to the path we ourselves have paid. So how should we respond? How should we respond to all of this? Hell is a reality that we've brought into God's good world. You and I both have brought hell on earth. And it's a place that God will hand us over to. He says, if that's the kingdom you want, I'm going to give you that kingdom. But know that it's just a place of fire, of darkness, of frustration, of dehumanizing. You'll, you'll never be who you were intended to be. You'll never be in line with your design as a human being if you continually follow your will and choose sin over my will. And that, that's the place called hell. So how does that line up with the God we worship? The one we claim is full of mercy, grace, and love. The one we love to put songs to that are happy and joyful. Is this really the character of the God we sing about, preach about, and claim to follow? Is this what God is? Is this who he is? The easy answer, the short answer, maybe not easy, but it's the short answer, is yes. Our God is one who loves justice, but he also loves his world. And this means that his justice will heal his world. If God is a God of justice and God is a God of love, and if he loves his world, then that means he will heal his world at whatever cost it takes. And that means for us who have brought brokenness and hell on earth, part of God's love means he will get the hell out of his earth. He's committed to doing it. He will do it. So the cross of Jesus perfectly describes this. When you look at the cross of Jesus, there in that image, in that profound moment, you see God's justice and God's love. You see that he is serious about getting the hell out of his earth. You also see that he is serious about bringing his humanity with him, back in a relationship with himself. God is just. God is loving. And we see that in the cross. So this is why we must focus on Jesus in order to understand hell. We most fo must focus on Jesus to understand heaven, to understand anything the atoning death of Jesus and his resurrection demonstrated God's justice and his love. God judges the world to heal creation. God's judgment is good news because he cares enough to redeem 
his universe. So this is why how we relate to Jesus, how you and I relate to Jesus, determines how we will be judged by Jesus. So how do you relate to Jesus? Jesus, in Matthew 7, in one of the most frightening passages in all of Scripture, says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. God's judgment will be a surprise. There are people that you have in your mind pictured as they're going to go to hell, and it will be a surprise to you when you see them in the new creation alongside you. The thief on the cross is a perfect image of this, of how God's judgment is a surprise. There's this thief next to Jesus who has done all of these wicked things his whole life. He's literally being murdered or executed for his crimes. And because of a simple profession of faith in Jesus at his last hour of life, Jesus tells him that he's going to be with Jesus in paradise that day. God's judgment is a surprise, but we need to make sure that we're taking that seriously. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lord, did we not attend thee now? Lord, did I not preach sermons about you? Lord, did I not read my Bible as much as I could? Lord, and Jesus says, it's not about whether you think you know me. It's about whether I know you. Are you known by Jesus? Do you really know him and does he really know you? And that will be reflected in your life. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. God saves you to change you to make you more like Jesus for his glory. And that's how we will be judged. Now the good news for this and all of this is that our works, our efforts will never measure up to God's standards. But God himself became a man so that he could live up to the standard for us. And as we have faith and simply surrender our wills and trust in Jesus, say, Jesus, I want your life to be my life. I want my, my will to be your will. I want to surrender to you. There is a profound miracle that happens there where you are transferred to a kingdom of darkness and hell, to a kingdom of eternal life to be with Jesus forever. And then he brings you into a process a process that might be painful, but it's, it's growing you to be more and more like Jesus, where you treat the least of these in the same way Jesus treated the least of these. But it begins with that statement of faith, of, of knowing Jesus, but also asking Jesus to know you. Lord, make me your child. Bring me on a journey to make you more like you, to make me more like you. So are you known by Jesus? I know this is heavy for the morning, but we have to start here. The band's going to come up. We're going to take uh, a moment to respond to this. We've gone over a lot of information and uh, facts, but the reality is this. This question, 
should be something that should be on all of our minds. It's on my mind. It's on, um, it's something that Jesus wants us to think about. And here, hear me. This is not a guilt trip. I'm not getting you to simply make a response for the sake of making a response. I'm asking you to honestly ask, are you known by Jesus? The, Paul says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he has the reins in your life, he is the king on your heart, then you will be saved. So if you need to do that, if you need to have that decisive moment of, Lord, I'm going to follow you, find a leader in here and talk to them as soon as you can. We're about to go to small groups after this. You can talk about it with the people in there. Or if you just need to say, Lord, I haven't been doing this. I haven't been dying to myself daily. I want to. I need to. I really, really have the desire to, but I need to die to myself again so that your will could work in my life. Your will be done. Then simply pray and ask God to work that in you and to give you the endurance and the strength to continue in that. Okay? Um, so we're going to stand back. And-